you'll recognize this as music from the return of the king from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Eric Kunzel and the Cincinnati Pops Orchestra, an album titled Great Film Fantasies. When literary critics read The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien, surely they experience the wonder and delight of the story. But they have a job to do. Take Lucas Neeler, for instance. Here are some of his thoughts. The story is set in the Third Age, a time when much of the virgin forest that once covered Middle-earth has disappeared. Travelers instead cross wastelands like the dead marshes or the strip-mined countryside surrounding Arzengard. Elves, the firstborn of Middle-earth, once trusted with its stewardship, are at this time an endangered species, while Sauron and his legions thrive in bleak, black Mordor. Having helped destroy the One Ring, the hobbits return home to find their shire converted from an agrarian economy to industrialism and sharecropping, from a laissez-faire government to a top-heavy bureaucracy. After just one night in the new shire, Frodo and his band are arrested for the curious, spurious crimes of gate-breaking and tearing up rules and sleeping in shire buildings without leave and bribing guards with food. As F.J. Turner would have it, the Shire's democracy crumbles without the existence of free land. Trees lie lopped and dying, and a whole line of ugly new houses stands in place of the quiet hobbit holes of Bagshot Row. When Samwise Gamgee, a gardener, sows magic seeds throughout the Shire, he re-establishes its agrarian economy. Bushes, vines, and berries grow in rich profusion. All newborns are fair to see and strong. North Farthing barley was so fine that the beer of 1420 malt was long remembered. Words of Professor Lucas Neeler from an essay titled Green Reading. As it happens, Phoebe Wagner is an assistant professor of English at Lycoming College in Williamsport. She is a writer and editor as well, and as we'll learn, as a child, her imagination transported her to Middle-earth as her father would read aloud The Lord of the Rings. That direct experience of the power of that story, a story in fantasy form, has come together with her academic interests and creative talents to shape Phoebe Wagner as someone who is at the cutting edge of a literary movement and a distinctive fictional genre or subgenre known as solar punk. She edits collections of solar punk fiction, nonfiction, and art, and she writes imaginative stories exploring questions raised by the movement. And on April 18th, Android Press will release When We Hold Each Other Up, her new solar punk novella. We had a chance to speak by phone with Phoebe Wagner about solar punk, her novella, and her writing life. I have a pretty traditional young writer story when it comes to that. When I was young, I loved telling stories and making up stories from the time I was, from the time I can really remember, I would oftentimes act them out with my toys and things like that. Um, and then as I slowly got older, I started to try and write them down in journals and things like that. But what really unlocked my writing for me was at age 12, I um, got an old computer in my bedroom. 
It like barely worked. It was nothing more than really a word processor at that point, but that's all I needed. I could type so much faster and cleaner than I could write, just being, you know, of the millennial generation. And so that really opened it up for me. And I started writing short stories and typing them and printing them out and giving them to people. And I wrote my first quote-unquote novel at age 13 through National Novel Writing Month, wrote a story that reached 50,000 words, which technically qualifies as a novel. So sort of after that, I never looked back. When you were inventing stories as a child and as a young person and putting them down and all the rest, where did the exposure to fantasy and maybe science fiction or dystopian literature, were you reading everything? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was reading everything, and um, I loved to read, um, but my parents were big science fiction and fantasy fans, so I was very young when they showed us Star Wars and Star Trek, um, but really importantly, it was my dad who loved Lord of the Rings, so we were very young when he wanted us to experience J.R.R. Tolkien for the first time because he had heard the movies were coming out, so when I was around seven years old, he sat down to read Lord of the Rings to us. That way we could have an experience with the book before the movies came out um, a few you know, years later. So that was really where my love of fantasy came from. And for quest stories in particular, came from that very early experience with Tolkien and, of course, C.S. Lewis as well. Were you reading Margaret Atwood kind of stories? What were the dystopian things you were encountering? It was really um, a little bit later, probably when I was a teenager, the first novel I remember that would explicitly be a dystopia would have been The Hunger Games. I'm sure there were some other novels in that time that I read that were on that spectrum, but I really remember reading The Hunger Games for the first time not long after it had come out. I was really in that sweet spot where I was a teenager right when everything got popular, and I was just so interested in this darker vision of the world that still felt very relevant to where I was as a teenager and to the experiences I was having. And so that was really my first sort of step towards, okay, how can we talk about darker issues in a way that is still entertaining, that is still interesting, but also importantly relevant to the current moment we're living in and not just something that is for only pure entertainment. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. But that was my really first interaction I remember with dystopian literature with The Hunger Games. And I, of course, went on to read a lot of Atwood and things like that as well. But it was really Hunger Games that started it. In, for example, high school, were you organizing other students to sign petitions to do things for the environment? Were you recycling? When did your interest in actively being concerned about the environment come into your life? Yeah, that's a great question. So it certainly wasn't in in high school in the way that I think a lot of high schoolers sort of had that experience of potentially doing drives or recycling or things like that or signing petitions. For me, it really came um, in college during the fracking boom. So I started college in 2010 at Lycoming College in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And so I was just sort of coming of age when that really started to impact the people that I knew, the town I was living in, you know, I was watching the roads sort of deteriorate, but I also at the same time was knowing friends who were able to, you know, put new roofs on their houses because they had received a payout. And so seeing what was going on there and how the river was being impacted, how like locations where I used to drive by on a way to go hike or go sit by a creek or something would be impacted and flattened out for a well or for a parking lot or a containment pond really started to have an impact on me and sort of led me all the way back to Tolkien, actually, from my childhood because even though Tolkien isn't always thought of as an environmental writer, the end of The Return of the King is very anti-industrial. And so I sort of had that in the back of my mind from my childhood, and then I started to witness what was going on in the early 2010s. 
And that really started to shape my environmental interests, which led me to a graduate program that was focused on environmental issues, led me to, I went and joined the Standing Rock protest in the Dakotas for a weekend, and just led me to that more direct activism path along the way. And in doing so, that showed you yourself, I assume, that you don't have to just despair, that despair isn't useful. There are things that can be done, which is reflection of the way you say that there's importance in the darker vision and seeing that, but you didn't leave it there. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, oftentimes dystopia is where so many writers start. At least that's also kind of how it felt for me starting in that darker place. But exactly like you said, as I participate in my own activism, as I was shaping my own life in terms of how I viewed the environment, that definitely led me to a more hopeful outlook that the change we make today can influence the future, which of course led me into more of the solar punk writing that I'm doing today. Now, there is something that many people probably won't recognize as we're talking, and you just said the term solar punk. How did you become aware of other writers with the similar impulse? It really came actually online. So solar punk, the subgenre of science fiction and fantasy that sort of is the grandchild of cyberpunk, you might say, it had a lot of roots online, particularly in social media, where people were writing stories, but also, I think importantly, while they were writing stories and creating art, they were trying to figure out what was viable in a future shaped by climate change, shaped by global warming. Like, how is humanity going to have a viable and enjoyable living experience, something that is not dystopic? And so there'd be posts about with writing prompts for solar punk stories right alongside people trying to figure out, okay, what might a hydroponic gardening system look like in the southwest of the U.S., where we have a different relationship to water, a different relationship to sunlight. And so it was this imaginative thinking and this actual trying to figure out what this future could look like alongside the creative output that was really important for me when in finding solar punk literature. And at the time, the genre was so new, there really wasn't anyone that was writing a lot of solar punk literature. That's starting to change now, which is really exciting to see. But it was a lot of sort of proto-solar punk books, books that can't be labeled solar punk because they came out much before the genre. But books like Ursula K. Le Guin's The Dispossessed, that's a really common one that will get brought up in solar punk conversations of being able to imagine a different world through the lens of anarchist ideology and what that world might look like. And so that's an important sort of early text, even though it came well before solar punk was sort of on anyone's mind. And you actually have been someone who recognized what was going on online or the stories that were coming out. And you set about with a collaborator to collect. And it wasn't just written work. Yeah, absolutely. I was so, so excited about how Sunvault has really taken off. But Sunvault Stories of Solar Punk Nico Speculation, which I co-edited with Bronte Whelan, came out in 2017. And it was the first general anthology of solar punk literature in English. The English part is important because actually the first anthology of solar punk literature came out from Brazil and was in Portuguese and has since then been translated. So this is really a global subgenre, which is always important to bring up. But with Sunvault, I was so lucky to really create and be a part of shaping what is solar punk. And that's really what we started was our operating question as we read through a slush pile and read through the different submissions. Importantly, because solar punk always had an art aspect to it, there's a lot of great visuals for solar punk. We wanted to include art as much as possible in the book. And due to printing constraints, we couldn't do like full color images or anything like that. But we were able to include some line art. We were able to also include poetry, which we felt was very important, as well as just a different way to engage with these hopeful features 
in addition to including a bunch of really excellent fiction, some of it shorter, some of it longer, that has since then gone on to be re-anthologized in different best-of-the-year collections at the end of 2017. So we are both very proud of what Sunvault became and the fact that it has staying power. Every once in a while, I'll go to a conference and someone will be like, oh, you're that C.B. Wagner that you edited Sunvault. And so it's always fun to see it sort of out there and still impacting and inspiring people. But you yourself are a writer, as you've told us. And so where did you go personally then to the point where you're going to release a novella in April? Yeah, so as much as I'm known as the as an editor, really, in the solar punk world, I was always writing it on the side, mainly because I knew that I wanted to figure out if I, if I so strongly believed in solar punk as a way to think through climate change, to think through the impacts of global warming, and to think about ad- adaptation, then I also needed to be making that part of my artistic practice. So while I don't only write solar punk, it's a huge part of what I do write, mainly because I'm also trying to help myself keep a hopeful outlook on the future. And so solar punk at its heart is about imagining new futures in the midst of and in opposition to environmental collapse and also working to create those futures. So since Sunvault came out in 2017, I co-edited with my collaborator, Bronte Wheeland, another collection, this one nonfiction, in hopes of doing just that, working to create those alternate futures. And from that work is really what then inspired me to continue writing solar punk and to continue bringing what I see as some of the important aspects of solar punk that sometimes get, I feel like, missed in all the different aspects that it can have. You know, it is a somewhat broad subgenre in a way that it engages with environmental issues. And so I had certain things I really wanted to dial in on when I wrote the novella, When We Hold Each Other Up. And I was really pleased to have the sort of freedom for my publisher to really dive into those ideas of mutual aid, community, and also how we interact with the non-human world. How about character development? Is this something that, just like any story, where you're going to have recognizable characters who have depth and obstacles and all of the things that we love in good stories? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, In fact, one of the things I was doing with this novella and something that was really important to me was thinking about how we tell stories and how we tell how we tell particularly legends about different people. And so one of the main characters in this novella really has to wrestle with how he was portrayed in the past as a climate activist and how is he going to work sort of now in this future that is where things are a little bit more stable and what kind of role is he going to play? Is he going to continue to be the legend or is he going to pass on to some other aspect of his personality and sort of leave that legend behind? And so one of my characters, that's really something he wrestles with throughout this short novella technology can be good or can be bad, right? It can help us in in many ways. How overall in solar punk circles is technology examined, evaluated? Is there a Luddite element of solar punk? Is it this way or that, depending? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think anyone who's involved in solar punk might have a slightly different answer. But the way that I approach technology and solar punk literature and the way that I sort of think about it when I'm putting these anthologies and these collections together is that technology is all about having the right tool for the right moment. And we have to remember, too, so often we think of technology as sort of the next shiny new thing. But a shovel is also a piece of technology. You know, um, a bicycle is a piece of technology. And sometimes you don't need to make it a smart bike or a smart shovel. It can just be a shovel in the moment. So in solar punk, technology is viewed as sometimes having just that shovel when you need it, but also sometimes creating a new piece of code to patch up a hydroponic system. Or from one of my favorite stories from Sunvault called Boston Hearth Project by TX Watson, 
Technology is very important as people who, a group of people who play esports use VR technology to hack into a smart apartment complex. And so the VR technology is how they're able to do that. So using that technology as a tool to create change in their community is an important part of that story. But ultimately, it comes down to technology being about the right tool and the right moment. And sometimes we've already had that, have that tool available to us, and sometimes we have to invent it or combine tools in order to make something new. Do solar punk stories lend themselves to being told on film, TV, that sort of thing? Are there examples out there yet? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it does. And I'm, I think we're going to see that's going to be the next sort of shift in solar punk. And sort of the reason why I think that is there's, if you, um, on YouTube, actually, there's a great little solar punk short film. It's a minute and 30 seconds long. But it's actually a Chobani yogurt ad, and it's this beautiful visual, and it's a beautiful little story that gets told in a minute and 30 seconds. It's very, it looks very Studio Ghibli in the way that it's presented, and, it's, and it has a lot of views on YouTube. But at the same time, like I said, it's an ad. So I think where we're kind of seeing that manifesting right now is through people who are interested in using solar punk for marketing or advertisements. We haven't really seen a movie or a TV show that's been very solar punk come out yet that's fully embraced it. But I think it's coming. You know, there's a visual aspect of solar punk that is definitely there and that people are interested in. And so as the genre continues to grow, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing more solar punk aesthetics pop up here and there in films and movies and TV shows, etc. Is there a philosophical point of view underlying many of these stories? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, where we see it probably the most strongest is with anarchist ideology. There's quite a few people who are involved in anarchist thinking and writing who also enjoy solar punk. But you also see people who are interested in communism, interested in socialism, um, interested in libertarianism, interested in just sort of individual off-the-grid living. Like, well, there's a lot of different people that have become an expressed interest in solar punk. But oftentimes where we see that, like I said, is there's a lot of anarchist theory that people end up pulling in. But that's one of the great things about solar punk is that it really lends itself to being a tool to explore different ideologies in terms of what is useful in the current moment. Oftentimes right now, one of the most useful things that we can see, particularly as we're still riding out the end of the COVID-19 pandemic, is concepts of community building, mutual aid, um, just transition, and some of the more environmentally minded philosophies that have been coming out and that have been important in the past few years. And so that's where I think we're seeing a lot of work being done in solar punk is thinking through what does mutual aid look like in a community? What does solidarity look like? Um, and sort of pulling those from the different ideological traditions that they were founded in. What about the concerns that are so prominent today about diversity, inclusion, equity that would have to be part of these considerations? Oh, absolutely. One of the things that drew me to solar punk when I first discovered it was the fact that it's not just an environmental ideology. In fact, importantly, it recognizes that we cannot have environmental justice without social justice and decolonization. So solar punk is not just about growing community gardens. It's also thinking about what do we need in order to have equitable communities uh, and what does that look like from a practical consideration. And one way that I approach that too, and I think is important with my editing, is also making sure that when I create these collections of writing, that I'm making sure I'm bringing in diversity of voices, diversity of people who are living in different parts of the world, that we're not just thinking about what does what does a just transition and environmental justice look like on the East Coast, um, that we're thinking very thoroughly about what that looks like in different parts of the U.S. and in different parts of the world. And so one of the things that's important when thinking about solar punk is that it is about 
what a community needs in that moment. And so each community is going to be different. What Williamsport, Pennsylvania needs in the next year is going to look different than what a community in Texas is going to need in the next year. And so making sure that diversity, equity, and inclusion and other considerations of social justice are prominent in SolarPunk is important because it's about meeting those community needs. And we know that our communities have a diverse set of needs when it comes to social justice. You teach at the college level, Phoebe. What about their interests when you teach a course in this genre or as part of a larger, maybe lit survey course? What are your students' interests? What do they want to read? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, oftentimes I find that my college students are desperate for hopeful futures. They're desperate to see that hope and to see that possibility. I think particularly that generation is struggling right now with seeing a visualization that is hopeful, that is a thriving community, rather than one that's founded on pain or unfounded on inequity. And so whenever um, we talk about solar punk or I give them a solar punk story or we work on solar punk writing prompts, they're always um, excited about the, uh, the challenge of fixing or working through some of the social justice and environmental issues that we're facing right now in a story set 20 years in the future, 100 years in the future, et cetera. So overall, I find they're, they're so ready to embrace this type of thinking, whether it's exactly a solar punk story or just the concept of hope through action and creating hopeful futures and hopeful communities in their work. Let me ask you then, your novella is coming out the week of Earth Day. Is that a coincidence? Uh, yeah, I believe it was, uh, though my publisher would have to be the one to answer it. But I did I did notice as we got close to the date, I was like, oh, this is this is perfect. What a perfect time to let out, uh, put out a solar punk novella. April 18th, is that the day? Yes, yep, April 18th. What will happen? Will you have book signings and things like that? Yeah, so right now I will be holding a reading and book signing at like Cumming College through their Humanities Research Center that is open to the public, so people are welcome to join. That will be from 4 to 5 on April 18th. And then I'll also be doing a book signing at Otto's Bookstore in Williamsport on June 1st, Friday, which I believe is June 2nd, which is the first Friday event in Williamsport, right downtown. So, yep, that'll be on Friday, June 2nd. And I'll also be going to different parts of Pennsylvania to sign books, and I'll have all that information available on my website. Which is? Phoebe-Wagner.com. Tell us what will be happening with your writing before the end of the calendar year. Yeah, 2023 is a big year for me. So um, in April, my debut novella, When We Hold Each Other Up, comes out. And then in July, I have my third anthology of solar punk work. Um, This will be my first time just as an editor by myself. And it's called Fighting for the Future, Stories of Solar Punk and Cyberpunk. And it is a collection of, as the subtitle says, solar punk and cyberpunk stories. And I always felt that solar punk and cyberpunk had a connection and were in conversation with each other. And we never fully explored that. So this anthology has a collection of cyberpunk stories, stories that are sort of transitioning from that more dystopic, technology-based cyberpunk world to a more environmentally just, hopeful future in the solar punk. So we have those transitional stories. And then we end on a collection of solar punk stories. So it's really trying to build that bridge between cyberpunk, which is the first of the punk subgenres, and solar punk, which has kind of risen to be one of the more popular, newer ones. And then finally in October, I have my debut novel, uh, A Shot of Gin, coming out in October of 2023. 
And that's totally different than my environmental work. That is an urban fantasy novel about Jin who works security at a casino in Reno, Nevada. And that casino is run by vampires. And one of the reasons Jin's a perfect employee is because vampires can't drink her blood. So there is some environmental criticism in there, but a very different book than my solar punk book. So that's what I got going on this year. A lot happening, but I'm very excited and to have these three books coming out into the world. Phoebe Wagner, she is assistant professor of English at Lycoming College in Williamsport, and she's been speaking with us about solar punk and her writings and her editing and her debut novella titled When We Hold Each Other Up, a solar punk novella, will be released by Android Press Tuesday, April 18th. And coinciding with the release, there will be a book reading and signing in the Humanities Research Center in the Academic Center on the Lycoming College campus, again, in Williamsport. The event will get underway at 4 o'clock, and it's free and open to the public. There will be another event, the Auto Bookstore hosting an event on June 2nd, and then as the next Solar Punk Anthology is released, there will be more excitement and her debut novel, A Shot of Gin, to be released in October by Parliament House Press. So that's Phoebe Wagner and she is releasing a novella titled When We Hold Each Other Up, a solar punk novella, April 18th, and there will be a book reading and signing at Lycoming College, and that's in Williamsport at 4 o'clock. It's free in the Academic Center. For more information on the web, lycoming.edu slash English, L-Y-C-O-M-I-N-G dot E-D-U slash English, or you can go directly to her website, and that's phoebe-wagner.com, P-H-O-E-B-E-Wagner.com.